studying the book of Proverbs. And we've already considered a number of messages already. We looked at Solomon, first of all, who he is and the wisdom that was given to him. And we've parked on the prologue or the preface to Proverbs, and that is our need for wisdom and instruction. We need the fear of the Lord so that we might know truth, so that we might love truth, so that we might practice truth. And we've considered a number of questions. What is the fear of the Lord? And we looked at its fundamental elements. We've asked the question, what privileges belong to those who fear the Lord? What duties are required of those who fear the Lord? What characteristics mark those who fear the Lord? And now we come this morning to consider some common misconceptions about the fear of the Lord. Brethren, what we think about God determines how we live before God. The Bible teaches us that the fear of God is the very heartbeat of Christianity. This reverent disposition toward the Lord, a desire to please Him, and uh, a desire to not displease Him, to do everything as unto Him and for His glory, this reverent disposition moves us to humbly receive and to heartily obey His Word. This glad submission to God and submissive response to his word makes the God-fearing, as the Bible teaches, the most blessed of people. You want to know what it means to be a truly blessed pe person, then fear the Lord. This is taught in many places, particularly I look at one text here, Psalm 112 and verse 1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Now, in today's message, my purpose is to expose and to offer biblical corrective to several common faulty notions that obscure the scriptural teaching on this crucial and dominant biblical theme. I never understood how prevalent this theme is in scripture until I started this series. From the first book in the Bible to the last book in the Bible, this word is used many times. Fear, dread, terror, reverence. In fact, it's often used where the word is not used. The idea is there. The fear of the Lord is the dominant describing theme of a person who knows the Lord. And I suggest that a proper understanding of the fear of God is essential to being a healthy, holy, and happy Christian. But biblical ignorance or imbalance and false teaching have contributed to the misunderstanding of this essential disposition of the Christian life. And we're reminded what is true spiritually, what is true physically. We are what we eat. 
Spiritually speaking, if we dine on junk food or worse, we will never become strong, healthy Christians. If we are to be mature Christians, we must be careful Bible students. So the Bible teaches. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. Now who are the mature? Who because of practice, they hear it and they do it, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's not enough to hear the word. You have to practice the word. And in practicing the word, you're able to discern between good and evil. Acts 17 and verse 11. The noble Berean Jews were of this kind of person. Now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why do we know that? How does Luke describe them as being more noble? For they received the word with great eagerness. They were excited about the preaching of the word. But notice what they did. Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were to examine everything carefully. That they did. So that their senses, by practicing the truth, were trained to discern good and evil. And the touchstone was always the Word of God. So we're going to consider some common misconceptions about the fear of the Lord. I have three. I've gathered them under three headings. And the first is this. If I fear the Lord, I cannot enjoy joy and peace. If I fear the Lord, how can I be happy? How can I enjoy peace? Well, underlying most misconceptions about the fear of God is the false notion that a deep reverence for God is somehow opposed to Christian happiness. You know, if I have this deeply reverent view of God, I'll never be lighthearted and happy. Well, this misconception is, is especially prevalent among professing Christians influenced by the common, shallow, frivolous, and man-centered teaching that passes for biblical instruction today. Furthermore, not surprisingly, this notion caters to consumers of a casual, feel-good religion who worship a user-friendly deity, always comfortable, but who inspires no awe and certainly no dread. Their ideal deity is the god of the little girl Pollyanna in the movie of the same name who advised her hellfire preaching pastor to preach from only the glad passages of the Bible. Admittedly, this pastor needed a corrective in the general tenor of his preaching, but the Pollyanna mentality seems increasingly predominant in our day. We want this kind of preacher that makes us feel good about ourselves. How wrong this is, since the fear of God lies at the heart of happiness in God. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So notice first under this point that the fear of God is compatible with Christian joy. 
The fear of God is compatible with Christian joy. Well, you may ask, how can a God-fearing Christian be joyful? Doesn't fear exclude joy? How can the two go together? Well, brethren, it is sin that destroys joy, not the fear of God. The Christian who fears the Lord is marked not by glumness, but by gladness. Author Jerry Bridges has written a book that all Pollyanna professing Christians and each one of us would do well to read. He purposely gave his book the intriguing title, The Joy of Fearing God. Joy in fearing God? How can that be? That sounds impossible. Well, not according to Bridges and the Bible to which he appeals and to Christian experience. We read that Nehemiah, who feared the Lord, chapter 5 and verse 15, testified that the joy of the Lord was his strength. This godly man both feared the Lord and was joyful in him. And so are all who know and walk in his fear, and in fearing him find joy in him. The Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord and joy in the Lord are not incompatible. We can be joyful and fearful in the Lord at the same time. In fact, these two graces of fear and joy are not only compatible, they are mutually combustible. What do I mean by that? Well, the graces of holy joy and gospel fear have a way of inflaming each other. The friction of the one ignites the other. And we find many witnesses of this fact in the Bible. First of all, those who worship in the fear of God experience the joy of God. Psalm 2 and verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence. Or your translation may read fear. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. There he puts the two right together. Rejoice with trembling. Only true Christians can understand this. And I trust that's been your experience. Trembling joy will characterize our worship as we ponder the sovereign God who rules the nations. Chaste rejoicing will prevent a flippant approach to him in worship. Psalm 2, this time right next door. Verse 12. Do homage to the Son. Your translation may read, kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now this kiss may not have been a sign of affection so much as submission. But notice, those are blessed who take refuge in this one who may become fearfully angry, and he will when he destroys all of his enemies. Psalm 5 and verse 7. But as for me, David says, 
by thine abundant loving kindness, I will enter thy house. I will enter your courts with praise. It's because of your abundant covenant faithfulness and love. At thy holy temple, I will bow in reverence for thee. He's rejoicing because of God's loving kindness. And he's also bowing in reverence before that God. Further, we experience this joyful reverence toward God as we ponder his mighty acts of salvation. The disciples were overwhelmed with a mixture of fear and joy as they discovered the good news of Jesus' resurrection when they viewed the open tomb and they ran back to share it with the other disciples. Matthew 28 and verse 8. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. One foot, foot runs with fear, the other with joy, back and forth, all the way to tell the disciples. Further, meditating upon the splendor and majesty of God's sovereignty incites both holy fear and happy rejoicing in the Lord. David's prayer underscores this mutual combustibility of joy and fear of God. First Chronicles 16, beginning in verse 27, reading through verse 31. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You see this mixture of joy and gladness and reverence and fear all mixed up together in the worship of God as we contemplate his sovereignty in the expansion of his kingdom. Our glorious sovereign who rules from heaven by whose powerful word all his purposes are accomplished, it should excite in our hearts holy joy and fear. Notice, secondly, under this point, the fear of God is compatible with spiritual peace. It's compatible with spiritual peace. Those who raise this objection think this way, I can't really relax and enjoy life if I fear the Lord. In fact, no Christian or church can really enjoy a settled peace of God's, a settled sense of God's smile if they live in His fear. Again, those who reason like this really don't understand that the fear of God not only can exist, but supports a comfortable sense of the peace of God in the assurance of our salvation. Fear and comfort are not enemies, they're friends. Psalm 85 and verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. 
Spurgeon has observed in these words, surely God's salvation is nigh to them that fear him. Faith knows that a saving God is always near at hand, but only, for such is the true rendering, to those who fear the Lord and worship him with holy awe. In the gospel dispensation, this truth is conspicuously illustrated. If to seeking sinners salvation is nigh, it is assuredly very nigh to those who have once enjoyed it and have lost its present enjoyment by their folly. They have but to turn unto the Lord and they shall enjoy it again. We have not to go about by a long round of personal mortifications or spiritual preparations, we may come to the Lord through Jesus Christ just as we did at the first, and He will again receive us into His loving embrace. Whether it be a nation under adversity or a single individual under chastisement, the sweet truth before us is rich with encouragement to repentance and renewed holiness, says Spurgeon. But I, I hear you object. Won't God-fearing Christians and irreverent public worship be repulsive to outsiders, especially to those who don't know the Lord? And I answer yes and no. Reverence for God puts off those who have no fear of God before their eyes. We ought to expect this. But the reverent worship of God-fearing Christians will be attractive to the elect, whether God is drawing them to Himself for salvation, or if they are true, serious-minded Christians who desire biblical worship and the fellowship of other God-fearing believers. Isn't that your experience, beloved? Especially... If you go somewhere where the worship is very frivolous and flippant and lighthearted and the pastor is more uh, a master of ceremonies than he is a preacher of the gospel. Brethren, in the spiritual realm, like attracts like. Reverent Christians are not put off by, but are rather attracted to others who fear the Lord. The fear of God acts like a holy magnet drawing godly Christians to each other who enjoy sweet fellowship together. And what is more, the Lord takes note of the sweet spiritual fellowship enjoyed by God-fearing Christians. He takes note of it. It catches His attention. In fact, He takes note of it, as it were, puts pen to paper. Malachi 3 and verse 16. In that day when there's so much carnality among the, re, the returning, those returned from Babylonian captivity. Notice what God says of a certain group of those who came back. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They could tell who they were. They got together in holy conference with each other. The carnal were outside. They didn't want a part of it. But the godly came together. Their holiness, their love for God, their love for His Word act like a magnet that drew them together. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him. You can see the Lord, take, I want you to watch this and take this down. I don't know if he's speaking to one of his angels. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. The Lord knows who fear him. He delights in the holy conference, the sweet spiritual iron sharpening iron fellowship of other God-fearing Christians. He delights in that. He takes note of it. And so we must ask, does the fear of God dampen spiritual enthusiasm? Does it kill worship? Does it hinder evangelism? Not hardly. Jeremiah prophesied of the expansion of the church beyond the borders of Israel into the Gentile world. We read about that earlier this morning, including the godly fear and holy joy that would characterize those who embrace the gospel of peace. Jeremiah 33, verses 8 and 9. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. By which they have transgressed against me. All their iniquities, all their sins, all their transgressions. And notice the characteristic of those who have been so pardoned by God. And it shall be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear of all the good that I do for them, and they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Did this have a dampening impact upon the expansion of the kingdom of God? Did it put off Gentiles? Maybe some, but there were elect among them that were joined into the one people of God. One commentator com commenting on the words, they shall fear and tremble because of all the, the good and peace. He says, the Gentiles shall be led to fear God by the proofs of his power displayed on behalf of the Jews. The ungodly among them shall tremble for fear of God's judgments on them. The penitent shall reverently fear and be converted to him. Jeremiah's prophecy began to be fulfilled, especially in the first century church. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus Christ, pointed men to the kingdom of God, pointed them to the Lamb of God. The church began to be built. And this prophecy is being fulfilled today. It began in the first church through the preaching of the apostles. Jews and pagans became fearers of God as they believe the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And those who embraced Christ by faith became characterized by the fear of God. And their godly fear, rather than hindering church growth, actually encouraged its increase. 
Look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. Luke gives testimony to that fact. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, a time of respite from the persecution that had come, enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. It went on in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it increased as a result. Now, brother, when God saves us, He, he replaces our slavish fear of Him as guilty sinners, knowing that the hammer is going to come down upon us one day. All men know this, whether they admit it or not, that there's a reckoning coming. And they're going to have to stand before God and give an account of their, their lives. And there's no way can they run away from it or hide from it. And so they have a slavish fear of God. But when God saves us, He replaces that slavish fear of God with reverential awe as His forgiven children. And this awe of God brings comfort to all who embrace Jesus, who is our peace. Various hymn writers give expression to this happy experience. John Newton, you know the words. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." And Francis Scott Key, "'Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee, rouse thee from thy fatal ease, Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. Brethren, God may use your vibrant testimony of his amazing grace to bring others to fear him and seek him by faith. David believed this. Listen to him. Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. This is David's own experience. Now he's singing praises to the God who rescued him from the pit. But notice the impact of his life as a redeemed person, the impact of it upon other people. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Some of you have come from a very checkered background, some a very black background. But God has saved you. He has plucked you as a brand from the burning. He's pulled your feet out of the muck of your sin. He's washed you in the blood of Christ. He's made you a new creature in Him. Old things have passed away. New things have come. You're a trophy of His grace. And now you love Him whom you once hated. And you hate the things that you once loved. It's obviously the work of the grace of God in your life. Any honest, honest objective person to say, I don't know how He's different. But I know that he's wonderfully different. And of course, all the glory goes to God. 
He is the one who did those marvelous and mighty things. You see, when you speak to the lost of the reason for the hope that is within you with reverent cheerfulness, those who neither know godly fear nor true joy, they stand up and take notice. It gives you opportunity to speak of the God who's made a wonderful difference in your life. What our perishing world needs is not more half-hearted, flippant salesmen peddling a take-it-or-leave-it Jesus, but earnest witnesses testifying of a gracious, almighty Savior who delivers hell-deserving sinners such as us from the deserved wrath to come. That speaks loudly. Jesus doesn't need milk toast representatives. He needs red-blooded, saved sinners speaking of the so great salvation that rescued them unashamedly, speaking to Him, this same God can save you through Jesus Christ. So if I fear the Lord, I cannot enjoy joy and peace. Secondly, if I fear the Lord, I will never have assurance of my salvation. If I fear the Lord, how can I ever be assured that I'm saved? If I fear the Lord, I'll always be doubtful about my spiritual condition and never possess a settled hope that all is well with my soul. That's the thinking. This common faulty notion rests upon a couple of wrong assumptions. First, this notion assumes that enjoyment of our salvation rests upon our fickle feelings rather than the unalterable objective facts of God's work in our redemption. We are saved whether we feel the power of this reality or not. Our feelings wax and wane. Our fear of God waxes and wanes. We're not saved by our feelings. We're saved by the objective work of Jesus Christ. And we need to bring our feelings into conformity with that fact. Our salvation is gloriously secured by what God has done and can never be undone. It rests in that alone. Second, our salvation is not made more secure by our fear of God any more than it is by our faith in God. Brethren, we don't rest our assurance upon our fear or even our faith. Faith or fear like faith is the gift of God. We are to exercise both. And yet we do not look to these graces, but to the author of these graces, Jesus Christ alone. We're not to look to our evidences. We're to look to God who gave us the graces to display with those evidences. If you're always looking to your evidences, if you're a belly button gazer and going by your feelings, no wonder you're like this. Psalm 115, verse 11. You who fear the Lord... Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
We're not our own help. We're not our own shield. God is our help. God is our shield. We're to fear Him and trust Him. Psalm 33 and verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness. They don't hope on their fear. They hope on God's loving kindness. We tend to make ourselves our own Savior. And we feel good about ourselves if our faith seems to be running high. And we feel bad about ourselves if our faith seems to be running low. But the salvation of God remains secure. He knows those who are His. Proverbs 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Not knee-shaking doubt, but strong confidence. And this word for confidence means a hearty trust, a settled reliance. True assurance that we are in a state of grace rests upon nothing but Christ and Christ alone. He is our hope whether we feel assured or not. We look to Him in faith. We tremble before Him on the basis of that faith. A faith that looks to Him and not to ourselves. Charles Bridges comments, The holiest and humblest, and I would add the happiest, is the most fixed and trusting heart. Our hearts must be fixed upon the Lord and upon the Lord alone. One commentator observes on Proverbs 14, verse 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. He says that the fear of God exists and proves itself is a strong ground of confidence does not mean that the fear of God is something in which one can rely, but that it has an inheritance which is enduring, unwavering, and not disappointing in God, who is the object of fear. For it is not faith, nor anything else subjective, which is the rock that bears us, but this rock is the object which faith lays hold of. It's all of Christ. Christ of all my hope, the ground. We just sung that. I just want to read, you who are in the new covenant, be encouraged by this. God will never let go of you. Jeremiah 32 and verse 40, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. You're safely hid in Christ and God. You're saved by Jesus keeping the stipulations of the covenant. You're safe and secure. Don't doubt. Brethren, we must never make our fear or our faith in God the ground of our confidence before God. 
Eliphaz's question to Job assumes this faulty thinking and false trust. He asked Job in Job 4 and verse 6, Is not your fear of God your confidence? We read that Job feared God in chapter 1. Very plainly, Job was a God-fearing man. And Eliphaz says, well, Isn't this the ground of your confidence? Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? See, he's encouraging Job to look at evidences, not to God himself. We are not saved, nor are we kept secure in God by our fear of Him, but only by Him who is our almighty Savior and faithful Keeper, who is the object of our hope and the cause of our fear. The answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism well describes the assurance of one who has his fear and hope fixed upon God. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on, to live for Him. That's a succinct statement of really the Christian life. Last question. If I fear the Lord, I cannot also love the Lord. 1 John 4 and verse 18 is often used for this argument. There is no fear in love. That seems to settle it, doesn't it? But perfect love casts out fear. There you go. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. It's not uncommon for Christians to wrongly deduce from this text that love for God is somehow opposed to the fear of God. But this thinking misunderstands the fear John speaks of that opposes and is cast out by perfected love. Now consider John's statement in context. He is teaching about God's love for Christians, verse 16, and how assurance of God's love will give us confidence in the day of judgment, verse 17, which will be so terrible for all other men. There is no terror for those who are the special objects of God's saving love because Jesus has borne God's wrath due us for our, our sins because He is our propitiation. John had already said that, chapter 2 and verse 1. The degree to which our love for God is perfected or mature, it will cast out all cringing, servile fear in serving God today and especially the dread of God's punishment on the last day. Thomas Scott, his observations, though lengthy, help us to understand what kind of fear is excluded by Christian love for God, especially when it is perfected. 
He says, In the love of God through Jesus Christ, as made perfect in love to Christians, and to all men for the Lord's sake, there is no terror. The obedience and good works performed from this principle are not like the servile and slavish diligence of one who reluctantly labors from dread of a hated master's indignation. I work, I don't like my master, he's cruel, but I'm going to do it. Not like that. But like that of a dutiful child who performs services to a beloved father, which conduce to the benefit of his brethren and family, and are on every account pleasing and voluntarily performed. Reverence of the majesty of God and fear of dishonoring him are intimately connected with the most perfect exercises of holy love. But terrifying apprehensions of vengeance have no place in it and cease in proportion as love prevails and inspires confidence and gratitude. He goes on to say, So that perfected love of God and of man, for his sake, must produce such full satisfaction of acceptance, such delight in his service, and such experience of his consolations, as to cast out all terror... This gives torment or punishment to the mind from which the spirit of adoption proportionately delivers the believer. The remains and returns of these terrors, therefore, in the experience of established believers, show that they are not perfected in love. However, the habitual preference, excuse me, prevalence of these fears implies that such persons are not duly brought under the influence of the spirit of adoption. See, they're still struggling with these servile fears. They may have the spirit of adoption, but this is part of the warfare that goes on in the believer, you see. <clears throat> but serve God more from slavish fear than from filial love. Sometimes we can get into that kind of mindset in which our service of God is drudgery and not delight. That can happen with true Christians because of remaining sin. Scott goes on to say, In heaven love will be perfect, and uneasy fear will be forever excluded. And in this world, the more we obey God from love, and the less we need and experience that fear which hath torment, the more of heaven we enjoy. Yet this does not imply that any Christians are made perfect in love on earth absolutely to the full demand of the divine law, or that slavish fears prove a man to have no love or grace, or that exemption from, every, or from fear of every kind is the privilege of believers. It is equally true that blessed is he that feareth always as that perfect love casteth out fear, for different kinds of fear are meant. Brethren, before you came to Christ, anything you did for God was done out of servile fear. Your knees were knocking, you hated the God who gave His law to you, that said, do this and don't do that. It was never voluntary, it was never cheerful, it was only superficial, 
And it was never for his glory. Never in obedience to his word. But God has changed you. Before you came to Christ, the prospect of eternal judgment terrified you because you had no true fear of God before your eyes. You were utter strangers to a childlike fear of God, and as a result, you were as unhappy as you were unholy. But now you love the Lord who first loved you, and now you walk in His fear. Not perfectly, but principally. The spirit of adoption animates you to serve the Lord with gladness and to worship Him with reverent joy. Certainly this is so if you are a true Christian. The question is, are you? I conclude with a couple of stanzas from a hymn that well express this disposition of love and reverence that dwell in happy harmony in the heart of those who fear God. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. So I leave a question to all here. Is this God your God? Do you fear this God? Do you love this God? If you know him, you'll love him. And if you love him, you fear him. There are no safer or more secure, no happier or more holy people this side of heaven than them. Are you one of them? Let's pray. Lord Father, we plead with you to give us the benediction of your spirit by impressing these truths upon the fleshy tables of our hearts by the powerful, omnipotent finger of your grace. Oh Lord, we would worship you with deepest, tenderest fears. We would serve you with that, that holy submissiveness that desires your delight and fears your frown. That we would do this in Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit, according to the teaching of your Word, that we might be happy and holy and healthy as Christians, and that ultimately the glory would redound to you who took pity on such people as ourselves. And for those who know not this holy fear and reverence, this delightful joy in serving you, we pray that you would open their eyes to see Jesus Christ lifted up, crucified for the likes of them. You'd grant them the feet of, of faith and repentance to run to him and to bow before him and, and to cry out, Jesus, have mercy upon me. And that for them, this would be the day of salvation. Oh Lord, hear us according to our several needs. You're a God who delights to do good to the undeserving and hell-deserving. Draw forth much attention to your gracious name this day through your gracious acts toward us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.